Value-based care is hard enough even in a well-resourced setting, so just try making it work in a rural area without the scale, staffing, and population density. But that's the market Tim Groniger, CEO of Caravan Health, is addressing, bringing together safety net and community health systems to deliver high-quality, low-cost care in a culturally sensitive manner, and with some 340B revenues in to sweeten the pot. From almost good enough to be a professional trombone player, to a graduate degree with a weird name, to the halls of Congress, and now at Caravan, Tim shares his story in this episode of the Health Biz Podcast. I'm your host, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. Enjoy the show. Well, Tim Groniger, CEO at Caravan Health, welcome to the Health Biz Podcast. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. You know, we're going to talk a lot today about Caravan and even beyond that because you've had uh, I've had a new acquisition, uh, but I want to start more toward the beginning and ask about your background, your upbringing, any childhood influences that you have brought into your current uh, work. Yeah, I, I was born and grew up in, in the suburbs of Kansas City uh, in Olathe, Kansas, and my mother was a, a very strong influence on my life, still is, uh, taught us uh, you know, everything I, I know about how to get through in, the, in life and uh, in the world, and uh, really all, uh, all of my family was, was really strong influences in my life, uh, and I was very lucky in that regard. And um, they set, set me up on, uh, you know, seeing the parenting in the Washington, D.C. region now and uh, just looking at it through the lens of a parent myself and thinking about how parents did it back then. Uh, my parents were indifferent to whether I went into uh, to music uh, and followed my passion in, you know, classical and jazz music as a trombonist versus going at, at a, you know, a school where I was not going to be very competitive or very good uh, because I was uh, I was a good high school performer, but realistically not on a trajectory to professional music accomplishment or go to a science career at an Ivy League school, which is what I ended up doing. Uh, so my parents had a remarkable ability to focus on, you know, uh, pushing me to do something that I enjoyed rather than honing in on the, the highest uh, economic, you know, maximizing net expected income over a lifetime, which uh, I think is, you know, behind a lot of parent parenting calculations today. Very nice. Well, I, I didn't play the trombone. I played the trumpet. I had a passing interest in the trombone, but I was too short and maybe still am to be able to, you know, do the full extent of the slide <laughs> to be able to play the whole scale. So the trumpet trumpet worked out uh, well for me, but I, I always, always love the trombone, to tell you the truth. Yeah, well, you know, you've got more range for error because no one ever knows exactly if you're Yeah, in it's about right. You know, it's somewhere around there. It's not like right. to press the wrong valve down and it's too <laughs> obvious, but uh, that only takes you so far. And that, I think that's probably the difference between a decent elementary school uh, you know, trombone player versus I think even by high school, they that's got right. it figured out about where it's supposed to be. That's right. So, uh, you know, you mentioned your, your, uh, your higher education, you have a few degrees, and you have one degree that I wasn't so familiar with, which is MHSA, which is not, at least not MRSA, that would be a bad brand for, for a degree. But what is, it, what is an MHSA? An MHSA is a Master's in Health Services Administration. It's a, a sister track to a Master's in Public Health at the University of Michigan. A number of uh, health sciences and public health schools have this track for folks who are generally going to be on an administrator's pathway or uh, work, you know, someone might choose between an MHSA and an MBA with a healthcare focus. So it's intended to, you know, it, it actually 
has a very set of defined protocols that many people use it later on where it feeds into a fellowship pathway. Uh, you can become, uh, you know, these folks often get the, the letters after their degree later of a uh, fellow of the uh, ACHE, the College of Health Executives. So it, it uh, you know, it's one of these administrators tracks that was intended to mirror uh, medical credentials tracks, which isn't how I ultimately ended up using it, but I, I learned a ton about structures of healthcare systems, uh, payment systems and design, and, and did a whole bunch of research and economic work there as well. No, it sounds uh, it sounds very uh, fruitful. And I read the description; I just hadn't uh, I hadn't heard about it before. So, you know, after school, you went into uh, government service, and probably how you got yourself over toward Washington D.C. But uh, what was the thinking for that and and what was your path within the government? Yeah, I was on a track in college to do an MD PhD. Like I was all in on biochemistry and going to med school. Uh, I had worked for uh, for years in high school in biochemistry labs at the University of Kansas and then uh, in undergrad at Harvard, was working at Harvard Med School Labs. I was like burned out on bench work by the time I was a junior in college. Yeah. I realized I needed to change something. Uh, I had my first career crisis uh, at the age of 20 or whatever that was. And so uh, in the lab, I had been really interested in hearing health policy discussions. And there, there was significant legislative action then uh, around the Medicare Modernization Act uh, and in college around the, the Balanced Budget Act. Uh, and before that, attempts at health reform during the Clinton years. And so I had been tracking that loosely, and, and one organization that kept coming up as being right in the middle of everything was the Congressional Budget Office. Right. And I thought it would be just so cool to work there, and I'd be able to learn, you know, be in the be in the middle of all of the legislative action. I'd be able to, you know, figure out how all of these confusing acronyms work, how the government actually works. Um, and so it was sort of following a, a, a loosely founded intuition based on what I was hearing in, on, on NPR and endless days in the lab. You know, one of the uh, sometimes underappreciated elements of government services that at a, at a young age, you know, right out of school, you can have some incredibly senior exposure and make a big, big impact relative to what you, know, you could do at any kind of uh, company, at least what I saw. Yeah, I grew up in, in Bethesda. Um, was that your experience as, as well? That's, ab- that's absolutely true. And that is also levied sometimes as a criticism of the current structure of how policy is made, which I think is also fair. But the reality is that the staff on Capitol Hill, both the you know nonpartisan staff like the Congressional Budget Office and the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, and then the committee staff, which I later joined, uh, and, and member staff that, that support members and that support the process of designing and drafting legislation, uh, they have a, a, a wide purview to uh, to do research, to call you know as a when I did go to the committee staff, I was probably thirty or so. Uh, and I could pick up the phone and call just the, the head of almost any company that any professor across the country, any think tank, uh, and they'd be willing to give time to help me acting on behalf of whether it was Henry Waxman or members of the Energy and Commerce Committee to help them do a better job crafting health policy. So it was a tremendous, uh, you know, uh, thrill and responsibility to be able to, 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 to be there and to distill all of the desire of members of Congress and of the public to do some big things on health reform, payment reform in my case, uh, and to you know try to harness hundreds of people across the country and distill their expertise down into you know concrete ideas and options for members of Congress to consider. 
Now, when you decided it was time to, uh, to leave government and go more to the corporate world, you made sort of a gentle half step by going into my business, which is consulting. So what was the, uh, what was the thinking there? What was the, how did you get into that? And what, what were you doing as a consultant? Yeah, so I spent a number of years in, in government going from, from CBO to the Hill to the White House and then CMS. And my goal with going to the CMS was to get closer to the operations and the business of healthcare as it is practiced by physicians and hospital leaders and uh, clinicians all across the country and, and, you know, the array of technology partners and others that support them. Um, so my, my path had always been focused on, I stayed in government longer than I ever intended to, partly because we were doing, we were right in the middle of these, these generational shifts that were, right. you know, just exhilarating to be a part of and so much work to do inside the government and never felt like we were done until the end of the Obama administration. So that end of the Obama administration came at a time when, uh, you know, it was abrupt, of course, we, we expected to be continuing on, you know, or... I thought I'd be loose, you know, gently transitioning out at the beginning of a yeah. administration at the time. And so I, I wasn't actively trying to, to find my next gig, uh, even though I thought I'd, it'd be a year or two. But it, it, it all got accelerated uh, with the, with the uh, Trump election. And so January 20th, uh, I, I logged off January 20, 2017. I logged off of my CMS accounts for good. And I, uh, you know, I... I wanted to take some time and not rush into anything. And so consulting was the path for me to to do some uh, some gig work. Uh, I did some work for the American Medical Association, for instance, in their CPT and Health Services Committee. Uh, I did some, you know, uh, some tour, some speaking work. And it was, uh, you know, not not like you, like, uh, you know, deep multi, you know, long term projects per se, but it, they, they lasted a couple months and I, I learned a lot. I, I did some work with Socially Determined, which is a, at the time was a, a startup in the D.C. area uh, and is still in the D.C. area. It's been it's been growing pretty robustly the last few years. So it was a chance to get exposed to a whole bunch of different people doing a whole bunch of different things, which was helpful for my job search as well as help paying the bills during the transition. So then you made, uh, you know, I would say you, you left on the on the corporate bandwagon, but if not the bandwagon, at least the caravan uh, by going to Caravan Health. And, you know, what was that about? And in particular, you know, what was it about Caravan or what is it about Caravan that kind of attracted you? Um, you know, what's the main emphasis? What need is being addressed there? Yeah. So I hadn't heard of Caravan. It in 2017 until a friend called up and said, Hey, Tim, I'm, uh, I'm on the board of this company. Uh, they've got a really dynamic founder. They're doing great work in the MS and ACOs and in supporting uh, improvement for rural providers and for smaller providers. Let me introduce you. I, th I think this is your next gig, honestly. He was very direct about it. And I, I laughed and said, okay, yeah. yes, we'll take the call. This was someone who's a good friend uh, and is still a good friend today. Um, and he introduced me to Lynn Barr, who founded Caravan, uh, really a uh, firecracker of a personality. She's on the, the MedPAC advisory board now. Um, and she had founded Caravan as a national rural ACO in 2014, and it had grown through word of mouth and referral to serve, uh, at the time, uh, about 150 primarily rural health systems all over the country. And uh, the, their mission, what, what really drew me in was it was a, a group of mission-driven capitalists, smart business people who were doing just what we hoped the alignment of in, uh, new incentives coming out of the government would do, 
which was to create what Don Berwick likes to call the, the business case for quality, right? Of Now there's these opportunities to have a contract with the government for total cost of care. How do you actually use that to deliver better care, which is really the organizing uh, arc of my career in government of, uh, you know, piecing together better options and better payment solutions from the government side. I wanted to pick it up from the, the private side to uh, actually implement these changes in the, the, the quote unquote real world, working with providers who were answerable to real bosses and real resource constraints. You know, our clients are not uh, the ivory tower systems that where it doesn't really matter if this work succeeds or not. If this work doesn't succeed, then they're likely to fire us and they're likely to, you know, get asked hard questions in their annual reviews or lose their jobs. And so this was, you know, where the rubber meets the road for me. And it's uh, it's exactly what I hoped it would be. It wasn't completely obvious in 2017 about what the time frame would be for value-based care, whether it was really going to move forward or not. How much did it matter what occurred kind of at the at the top of the federal government uh, from that from that standpoint to the success of Caravan? Yeah, it's a good it's a good memory uh, and a good point. At the time, there uh, Secretary Price was uh, in charge of HHS for a relatively short period of time, and he was very against bundle payments, for instance, uh, and mandatory bundle payments as from the perspective of like a small orthopedist uh, practice. Uh, whereas the I didn't sweat that too much because I was familiar with the structural alignment uh, that still undergirds all of this work and. Uh, it's easy to get uh, to look on any given day or, or month or year and say, wow, this is really a slog and I wish that this was faster. Um, but we've got permanent statutory support in the Medicare Shared Savings Program and the Innovation Center. We have alignment across four consecutive administrations, uh, bipartisan, that this, is, that this is the direction that they want Medicare and other payers to go. And we've got really robust alignment from private sector purchasers as well. And increasingly from employers. So I, I, if, for the most part, I don't sweat that the, the payment system is going to go against value-based care. I think it's just a question of how, uh, how deep is it? Uh, do, does it? Do we allow ourselves to, uh, to get distracted and chase other goals? And, you know, some distractions uh, wouldn't even be fair to call them distractions, like the, the pandemic and, uh, yeah. you know, the, the various, prob- you know, both health and financial problems that that created for providers uh, so it's uh, it's going to vary from year to year, but the long term direction uh, I've been confident for a long time is is towards total total accountability for costs and quality. Now you were recognized as a so called top twenty five innovator uh, by Modern Healthcare, and why why did they select you for that? What was any one particular innovation, or what was, what was the focus of that uh, award? Yeah, I think that it's a recognition of the success of Caravan Health and our clients and our teams. And we've been able to stitch together a solution for community hospitals and rural providers that are able to participate in accountable care and generate real income off of it by investing in primary care in ways that would, that are that were not available to them if they were working on their own or uh, or trying to do it without the support of this this platform. And so we, we created the concept of a collaborative collaborative ACO where rural providers and community health systems are working with 100 other systems like them rather than trying to go into these these ACO products alone. Uh, and we've put together technology solutions to enable them to, to know what they need to do next with their patients and to keep track uh, and to uh, identify systematically what their biggest opportunities are. 
Uh, so, you know, this, this was, uh, it, it was great to be recognized along with a, a really uh, distinguished list of innovators. Uh, but I think that it's a reflection of a, a whole team and a whole company effort. One of the reasons you, you can imagine why there's a bipartisan and longstanding support for value-based care is that uh, it's something not just for the cities, but it's for, you know, other, other kind of geographic setups. There's a lot of challenges with, um, you know, rural health care. What are the specific issues as it relates to rural providers playing in value-based care? You talked a little bit about the solution that you're providing so that they can, you know, not have to go it alone. So there's clearly a, a scale issue. But, you know, what are some of the challenges that would be particular to, let's say, a rural area versus where I am, you know, in a city? Sure. The, I'll, I'll give you two primary ones. One is staffing is an acute problem in all areas of healthcare, but the it's a it's a consistent multi-decade problem in rural healthcare where uh, it's not just you know patients leaving northern rural areas for the south, but uh, everywhere uh, skilled personnel, uh, clinical non-clinical are just hard to come by, and so we constantly have to be creative in what types of solutions that we can bring to, to help backfill or to help train, you know, train up new staff that are having to rotate in. Uh, and one of the, you know, as an aside, one of the things I'm excited about with Signify is being able to bring in direct care, care management support and mm-hmm. uh, care navigation support that we don't have to ask our clients to provide because we can provide it remotely. That's, that's you know, something that's relatively new uh, in the industry. It's becoming commonplace. And then two, rural, rural health care challenges and value-based care is just the complexity of the payment systems. So the, what we do and build for a physician fee schedule clinic, a uh, fee-for-service clinic in a you know, small urban or urban environment uh, where we are able to, to put together a very specific workup of pairing uh, an annual wellness visit with an E&M visit, uh, it's, it becomes challenging when you have billing rules for uh, rural clinics that prohibit that type of billing yeah. arrangement. And so it's been really important for us to be uh, aware uh, and to design alternatives for rural clients who, have, uh, who, who can't bill in the same way and have to design their workflows to accommodate the rules that they have to operate under. One thing I noticed uh, mentioned in your uh, literature is about the 340B program, and that's, that's usually like the... Uh, the chief source of, uh, you know, of, of, of income for a variety of different programs. But how, how does 340B fit in with what you would do uh, with your clients? Yeah. So we didn't focus on 340B issues at all until a couple of years ago. We did a poll of our clients at our symposium and asked them, what are we not doing that you want us to pay more attention to? And by far, the 340B program was at the top of the list. And uh, for those who don't know, the 340B drug discount program allows safety net providers, uh, federally qualified health clinics, a number of rural providers, the ability to access uh, drugs for their patients at Medicaid best price, essentially. Uh, You need to meet certain documentation requirements and it needs to be applied for patients who are eligible and for physicians who are eligible, filled at a, a pharmacy that's eligible. But it's for if you can cross the various requirements, then it can be a very significant benefit to uh, to a system, um, and can help them uh, defray the costs of operating population health programs or operating, uh, you know, passing through those discounts to their patients. 
there's a variety of options for how you can deploy that, that savings. And so as we dug in, we realized that there were a handful of data problems and a handful of documentation problems that were very well addressed by population health workflows of keeping tabs on your patients when they aren't in front of you, patients that are being managed by an external specialist, for instance, and making sure that uh, appropriate follow-up care is happening, that, that it's then being documented back uh, with the primary care practice or the employed practice. Uh, and there, there's a few pieces and a few tweaks that, in the, that clients can make to capture significant new revenue that doesn't come out of the population health bucket and doesn't require a, a ton of expenditures of new staff time that could otherwise be directed towards managing those patients in their high-risk medications. Thanks for starting off your answer by explaining what 340B is. I had realized when I asked the question, I had neglected to provide that context. So thank you for that. On the on Signify, you mentioned your excitement about uh, Signify. Now, Signify Health is now, I think, the parent company uh, right. of Caravan Health. Can you explain how that came together, how Caravan uh, fits in, and what it means for you? Yeah, absolutely. So Signify, we met through a, a process where we were evaluating our options for building enhanced solutions in post-acute care and uh, more robust disease management, outsourced services, for, to support our patients, to deal with some of these staffing issues. Um, I knew the, the legacy business inside uh, Signify, which is Remedy Partners, which was like Caravan, an early uh, value-based care company that was focused not on ACOs, but on uh, the, the various CMS bundle payment programs and had moved into commercial episodes as well. Um, we, when we met Signify, they said, uh, you know, look, you wanna build all of these things. We have them built already for our episodes business or for this other big part of our business, which is uh, in-home evaluations for Medicare Advantage patients. Uh, we are gonna be in 2 million Medicare Advantage homes this year, uh, identifying needs, uh, filling quality gaps, and uh, you know, documenting it all and, and feeding it back to the primary care system. Uh, we have all of these resources that would be very useful for your clients. Do you want to work together? And so it became uh, a merger conversation very quickly at that point. And we were able to, you know, the, it, it's not hard to line up uh, the, the synergies here where we can bring those outsourced services. We can bring a really robust post-acute care management capability. Uh, we can bring something that no other ACO operators are, are doing in, in significant scale right now of a uh, really robust specialty care management program which is not something that ACOs have done much of uh, historically. And so it, it all made just too much sense for us. And so we, we went through that really quickly and we closed at the, the very beginning of March. We're about a month in right now. Great, congratulations. And so you're still running uh, Caravan Health and you have a senior role within the broader Signify Health organization. Where, where do you see things going from here, recognizing that it just uh, just started off for you? Yeah, I'm I'm all in. I'm uh, I'm loving the Signify team and the the vision of what we're putting together. We have all of these uh, these unique resources to bring to bear on population health to uh, to serve both the Medicare market and the Medicare Advantage market, but also commercial payers who uh, and employers who um, you know you've got a short list of employers who have been trying to be creative in value based care for a long time. Uh, you know the Boeing's and WalMarts uh, of the world. But that, from what I'm seeing, that that list is expanding to uh, much more Main Street companies being willing to to get creative here. And so, uh, the the sky's the limit on what we can do with this combination of people and talent and assets that we've got assembled. And I'm I'm really excited for what for turning that into, you know, helping our clients take better care of their patients. Terrific. 
Now, do you have any time for reading, and do you have anything to recommend to our viewers and listeners, if so? Yeah, I um, I tend to split pretty evenly between fiction and nonfiction, depending on uh, on what's going on, and it's been strained lately. But I, I did just finish on the, the fiction side. I just finished uh, Matrix by Lauren Groff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it, it, I think it was released last year. A really um, unusual book about a um, an orphan who grew up in 12th century France and England uh, was sent to a monastery and uh, eventually, uh, you know, was put in charge of it and grew essentially some a mini Vatican uh, and all of the permutations of of uh, that you know really austere and then complicated life. It was it was uh, a mind bending read on certain levels. Really interesting. And then, you know, in the, the nonfiction, uh, I was reading, uh, not not quite done with, but uh, deep enough to get the, the main ideas, the uh, A World Without Email by Cal Newport. Newport. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, it, you know, provocative and really challenges the, the way that, you know, hive mind corporations work. And I, I will say that the way the government works too. Uh, to, and I think, you know, with, with remote work and with remote teams and with uh, a, a much more fluid working environment, I think it's important for for managers to be thinking creatively about what we can do to both work better as an organization, but also take stress off of individuals so that they don't feel like they can't actually think and work uh, and because they're responding to emails and slacks all day. So. Uh, not in a not ready to say that I, I'm advocating for a, an organization without email. I don't think that that's uh, practical, but I, I'm intrigued by ideas about how to get creative on some of these problems. That sound like two good recommendations. When you first were describing the Matrix, I wasn't sure if that was a fiction or nonfiction, depending on which direction right. you were you were going. So yeah. when you contrasted it with a nonfiction one, then I knew it wasn't for real. Yeah. Apparently, it was it was based on uh, a couple of historical characters that very little is known about. Yeah, uh, but I, I trust that this was not actually what happened in right. their lives <laughs> to a first order degree. Well, great. Well. Tim Groniger, CEO at Caravan Health, now part of Signify Health. Thanks for joining me today on the Health Biz Podcast. Thanks, David. I enjoyed it. Have a great one. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.